Oh, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We're going to be in Philippians, uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 there. So it'll be verse 27 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. We are deviating from our walk through the book of Kings because we only have two Sundays left together with me as your pastor. And so I wanted to visit this text in Philippians because I consider it one that is crucial for us as God's people and for Rockfish Valley Baptist Church as a church to have in our DNA some scripture passages need to be injected routinely into our bloodstream And so, with two messages left here as your pastor, I wanted to visit Philippians 2 and hope to remind you of the need to consider one another's interests ahead of your own. And then next week, I will preach a farewell sermon from Acts chapter 20, and we will conclude our time together by celebrating what the Lord has done over the last 10 years or so and what he's about to do here Uh, As I move on and he brings in the next pastor and you continue to serve him faithfully together. Now, having given that explanation for our deviation, let me ask you a question. What do you think should be the foundational attribute of a Christian? How would you answer the question, what is the hallmark characteristic of someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ? St. Augustine answered this question hundreds of years ago now by saying that the answer was threefold. First of all, humility. Second of all, humility. And thirdly, humility. It was humility that Augustine fingered as that attribute which is most essential to the Christian. And it is that attribute of humility that is in the background of all that Paul writes here in these verses today. It's humility that is present there because it is humility that cultivates unity. Philippians is a book about being joyful, being united in Christ, and living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes to the Philippians as the one who has planted that church, as a missionary that they support, and as one who is now in prison. In the first portion of chapter 1, he tells them how he is praying for them and about all that God is doing despite his imprisonment. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. They've given him money. They've sent him. They've hoped that the word of God would spread, and he wants them to know that even though he is in prison, the word of God is not bound. Some, indeed, are preaching Christ from envy and from rivalry, but he is rejoicing because Christ is proclaimed. He's not ashamed of his imprisonment. Indeed, he tells them in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wants them to know that whether or not he comes to them, they need to continue to pursue Christ. And that takes us up to verse 27. I'm going to read the passage, uh, give you the main idea, and then we will pray and begin to walk through it together. 
verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think that's better translated. You probably have a footnote. Conduct yourselves as citizens worthy or behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth upon our hearts. Main idea this morning is this. Paul is calling us to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And what he wants, that's the point of the whole letter, and what he wants in this particular section of the letter is for us to have the mind of Christ, to adopt Christ-like humility in our posture towards one another so that we might maintain the unity that Christ has purchased for us as his people. Your outline is there before you. Let's pray. We will begin working through the text together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work deeply in our hearts this morning. That you would take your divine scalpel and cut out our pride. Pray that you would wound us to heal us, that you would break our prideful bones you might heal them. Pray that you would free us from bondage to self-centeredness. Help us, Lord, to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, to think and live like Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Look again at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. I wanted to point out that Paul is calling us to live as citizens. That's what the word there means. It's pregnant with the idea of citizenship. And it's an idea Paul picks up again in verse 20 of chapter 3, where he says, but our citizenship is 
in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is calling the Philippians to behave as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He wants them to realize that their citizenship is not primarily in Rome, but in heaven. They are primarily identified not with who Caesar is, but who their Lord is. Christ is Lord. And the same is true for us who read these words thousands of years later. Our primary identity is not in who the president is or in what country of origin we hail from. Our primary identity is in Christ Jesus. We, through faith in Christ, who was crucified for our sins and raised for our justifications, justification, have been made citizens of heaven. Paul wants us to recognize our status as citizens and to live in a way that is consistent with that identity. He's saying, live worthy of that citizenship. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Show that you belong to Christ by living a life that is in step with the Holy Spirit. Citizenship, after all, shows who you are and who you belong to. I think that this is obvious as Americans. Back years ago now, when I visited uh, missionaries in China, one of my friends there, uh, is he picked us up at the airport, he met us, and there are all these Chinese people, and they are mostly shorter than myself, and definitely way shorter than him. He's somewhere around 6'5". And so when you looked out, when I looked out at the airport across the sea of people, there was the lanky six foot five white American. It was clear that he was not from China. It was clear that he was from somewhere else. It was obvious he stuck, stuck out. Sometimes Americans stick out in obvious ways in different parts of the globe. Some would say that that we are obnoxious or rude or entitled, but still it's, it's often clear when we go elsewhere that we are not from there, that we are from America. You, know, you set off fireworks on the 4th of July in Britain. You do things like that. They're not from here. It's obvious we're from another country, sometimes obnoxiously so, and, and sometimes our citizenship is more serious. We show that we are Americans in times of tragedy. You can think of 9-11, which is close upon us again. It'll be tomorrow. And I can remember being in high school and watching the, the planes crash into the buildings and the buildings come down. But what I remember more is the aftermath. Never had I ever seen so many American flags Patriotism was everywhere that you turned your head. Everyone was, was proud to be an American. They were showing themselves to be citizens of this country. And this is what Paul wants us to do. To show 
ourselves to be citizens of heaven, to be subjects of the Lord Jesus, to sort of wallpaper our lives with the blood of Christ, with the love of Christ, with the humility of Christ. He wants us to live as citizens, to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? It means conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is, well, Christ-like. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that is lived in obedience to God's word. It's a life that seeks to think and walk like Jesus. This is, Paul is not setting for us a standard that we cannot get to. He's not saying, live worthy of the gospel, but you can't do it. This is a command you can't fulfill. You'll never be able to do it, so you should feel guilty and helpless all of the time as a Christian. That's not what he's doing. He's giving us a command, and he's saying, the ordinary expectation of you Philippians, of you Christians here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, is that you would faithfully follow Jesus. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. It's to obey God's word. You are not going to do that flawlessly. You are not going to do that perfectly, but you can do it faithfully. Brothers and sisters, it is possible to please God. Your obedience to God's word pleases him. It's how you love God back. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's why 1 John 5 says the commands of God are not burdensome. They are fruit that is borne out in our lives, and they The good works please the Lord. You can please God. You can show yourself to be a citizen. You can live a life worthy of the gospel. And Paul has specific things in mind. He's going to move specifically. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. So he's saying, whether I'm there or if I'm not there, I want you to behave as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So he's, he's saying, you need to behave this way whether I'm there or not. I might come to you, I might not be able to, but you need to keep following Jesus. It's sort of like if I say to my children, it's not, it's not this, if I say to my kids, you need to clean up your room in the next 10 minutes because when I come upstairs, I'm checking. And if it's not clean, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, kids are real motivated at that point, right? And get everything nice and clean. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, I'm not coming, but you still need to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of Christ your King. And this is what that looks like. I want to hear that you're living a life worthy, that you are, and there's three participles, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not fearing or not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Because it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear 
that I still have. And so Paul expects them to walk worthy of the gospel by standing firm on the gospel truth, by not deviating or leaving the truth of the gospel behind. They are to stand firm in the Holy Spirit and as one in spirit together. They're to be united And so he has sort of a a defensive picture here. Football just started again, and so you will see one scene, one scene, one team get down to an end of the field, and the other team will be on defense. And their goal will be to make a defensive stand, right? To play defense and keep the offense out of the end zone. That's the sort of imagery Paul is using here, though it's military. It's militaristic. He's saying, stand firm. Assaults are going to come from your opponents. The world is going to persecute you. Do not move. Stand and stand together in one spirit with one mind. And the mind he has in mind is the mind of Christ, as he'll make plain later. So to live as citizens worthy of heaven, we are to stand firm side by side, united for the faith of the gospel. Secondly, citizens of heaven are to strive together. You see that second one in verse 27 also. Striving side by side together. If standing firm was the defensive picture, the striving together is the offensive picture. Paul makes use of language here that brings to mind a Roman phalanx, that military formation. The idea is that they are fighting together. They're fighting against the enemy. They're united in the cause of Christ. They want to see Christ worshipped by themselves and even by the enemies who set themselves against the cause of Christ. Thirdly, we see that he tells them to not be afraid. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, be courageous. And he's given himself, he's already given an example in chapter one of what courage looks like. He's been tossed into prison and still he speaks the word all the more boldly. And it's, his courage is contagious. You see this in verse 12 of chapter one. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is proclaiming Christ courageously, and that courage is spreading. And he's saying, I am following Christ courageously in the midst of persecution, so too can you do not be afraid of your opponents. Your faithful proclamation of the gospel, your conduct as a citizen of heaven is a testimony to them. It is a sign to them of their destruction. Your faithfulness in the midst of persecution, well, it tells them that ultimately they will be destroyed because they have set themselves against God, and you will be saved. Your salvation is from the Lord. Don't be 
afraid. And so we see that the citizens of heaven stand firm. They stand firm together. They strive together. And they do not fear their enemy. And you go, well, why, why are they able to do all of this? Ultimately, it's because they are in Christ. But the reason Paul gives here comes in verse 29. Because the reason you can do all of these things, the reason you can behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel is because it has been granted to you. Think of that word. It's important, important like a gift. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, right? That part makes sense for Christ's sake, for Christ's glory. We believe in him. We've been united to him. And so we walk faithfully, standing, striving, and not fearing. But here comes the surprising one. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. It's been granted to you that you may suffer for Christ's sake. That hits us really awkwardly. Is Paul saying that it is a gift of God to suffer? Yes. Yes, he is. And, and it's, that hits us as sort of strange because we don't know what to do with it. It's sort of like on your birthday receiving a dieting book or, you know, a six-pack of deodorant. You know, I don't know what to do with this. What are you, what are you trying to say? But, but the truth of the gift of suffering, it's not just suffering. You'll say it's suffering for his sake. Engaged in the conflict against the enemy. Paul is saying, it is a gift to have the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. You'll remember the apostles in Acts are persecuted, beaten, and they go away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, we read it together earlier, Chapter 5, verse 10, we say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And lest we think, well, I guess per being persecuted and suffering is only for some Christians and not for me, right? Persecution is only dying as a martyr or being enchained like Paul. Jesus does away with those sorts of illusions. Right, this is what he says in verse 11. Listen to, we, I think I'm talking a lot here. I wanna, we shrink down persecution to only mean dying for Jesus. But often in the New Testament, persecution includes being reviled, being slandered, being condemned, being hated by others because we're associated with Jesus. And, and Jesus makes it plain Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were 
before you. And so Paul is saying it is a gift to believe in Jesus and to be faithful walking like Jesus as you are slandered and persecuted for Jesus. It is a privilege to be persecuted for the name of Christ. And that privilege only makes sense in light of eternity. It will only make sense when you stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We can only rejoice in our sufferings and when we are being persecuted by enemies of the cross when we keep in mind that there is a reward coming and that God in his providence has given us this opportunity to bring him glory by remaining faithful while under trial. We can also remind ourselves that the Lord indeed is fighting for us and will ultimately deliver us from every peril. That's what I love when Paul says earlier in chapter 1, I think it's indeed connected to this. He says in verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. For to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Friends, we can glorify God as we endure suffering for the name of Christ. And he will ultimately bring us through every trial and torment. He will ultimately bring us even through death so that Christ will be honored in us. That, that is fuel for obedience. What a privilege it is to be counted worthy, to be despised with Christ. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There is a cosmic sort of warfare going on. And Paul is saying, you need to make sure that you are fighting against the enemy. And it really is interesting. There, the background under this, I think, comes to us from Exodus chapter 14. If you remember, the Israelites have fled out of Egypt and Pharaoh has them hemmed in against the Red Sea. And the people were like, you took us out of Egypt so we could die here. That's not so great. We should have just stayed there. And Moses says to the people in verse 14 of Exodus, verse 13 of chapter 14 of the book of Exodus, easier to just say it, Exodus 14, 13. And listen to what he says. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Do you hear those three words that are the very same that are in our passage? We live as citizens of heaven, the idea of striving, of standing firm, and of the Lord bringing about salvation. The idea here, Paul wants them to know, the Lord is for you. He fights for you against the enemy. Stay together as his people. Show yourselves to be citizens of heaven. Know who the enemy is. Those 
who are against Christ. And I, and I actually think part of the reason for this transition into, ver, into verse 1 of chapter 2 is Paul is saying, you all need to recognize that you are not the enemy. Listen to what he says. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, you can hear this over and over again. You get the idea. Paul wants them to be united as they stand against the enemy. And he wants them to be united such that they are not fighting one another. And so the prescription for that comes to us in chapter 3. Or chapter three verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So humility will cultivate unity as you stand firm together, strive together, and work courageously for the magnification of Jesus' name in the world. Although I will say that first part of chapter 2 is a little confusing because we want to read it right away like, like a conditional statement. If there is encouragement in Christ, then do this. But Paul doesn't want us to read it that way. Might better be translated like, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, works almost like a series of rhetorical questions. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there comfort from love? Yes. Is there participation in the Spirit? Yes. Affection? Yes. Sympathy? Yes. Then complete my joy by being of the same mind. You see what he's doing? Not to call to mind my children again, but be like me saying to them, has your mother purchased your clothes? They would think, yes. Did she wash your clothes? Yes. Dry them? Yeah. Did she fold them? Yes. Then you should probably put them away. She's done all these things, therefore, this is the action you need to take. That is what Paul is saying here. Saying there, there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort in love. You are united in the Spirit. There is affection. There is sympathy. Therefore, then, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Saying, be united together against the enemy. And then, in verses 3 and 4, he presents us with two characters. And there is a stark contrast between the two. He gives us a picture of a consumer and of a contributor. We see the consumer in the negative side of the coin in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. A consumer Christian does absolutely everything from selfish ambition and conceit. The primary driving question of a consumeristic Christian is what? Do I get out of it? Does this please me? A consumeristic Christian turns his or her preferences 
into priorities that cannot be compromised. Conscience issues are then translated into biblical commands, even though God has not said. This me-first mentality breeds infighting in the church. Quick Google search about silly church fights will reveal that there are consumeristic Christians everywhere. And it will reveal to you some insane things that those who claim to know Christ have divided over and fought one another over. Let me give you a few. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or blue, three drawers or four. One quipped, this was an official cabinet meeting of the church. Another one, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice, which hopefully that's not any of you this morning. We ran out of grape and we had some cran grape and so there's two different juices. Not a compromise, just a product of the situation. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee that was served. Some members actually left the church and started another. One wonders if they called it the right blend fellowship. Another argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Conclusion was reached only if it was served alongside of angel food cake. Another church reported that some members started a petition to have all church pastors clean shaven. I haven't even mentioned splits over carpet color, location of church picnics, and bulletin fonts. They're silly. But when you have a me-first mentality, when you view church as a product that you consume, when you view church as an entity that exists to make you happy, to meet your needs, well, then you, you come to these sorts of conclusions. Because after all, if the company doesn't meet your needs, you will take your business elsewhere, thank you, where they have the right filing cabinet, where the carpet color is the one you like. We laugh at a lot of it, but I mean, that that sort of thinking has been here in the past. I I pray that it's not as prevalent as it once was, but I'll never forget uh, when I came here early on hearing stories of parking lot fisticuffs over where a bush was planted. That would easily make this list, right? Although Susan did plant that bush over there recently, so maybe, maybe we're headed that route. I don't know. Point here is that the consumeristic view of church, it doesn't just exist out there. It exists in here. It exists in each and every one of us. Paul writes this to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit because they struggle with doing things from selfish ambition and conceit. And so too do we. Selfishness The seeds of it are always there latent in the soil of our hearts, threatening to break forth in us and to lead us into silly division over all sorts of preferential things or even matters of conscience. 
Friends, we must ensure that we are not acting as consumers. We come here together to worship God and to build one another up in love. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So often we are tempted to misread that, those chapters as if we are consumers. Well, the spiritual gifts, they exist for me, and I need to exercise my spiritual gift. This is about me, me, me. Well, no. If you read the chapter, the phrase you hear over and over again is these things, all things, are to be done for building up the church. Paul has in mind not consumption, but production. Not taking, but giving and contributing to the life of the church. Still, it is so, so easy. Something happens that we don't like. All of a sudden, we're ready for a fight, forgetting that our opponents are not in here, but out there, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I think demons understand much better than we do what is at stake in the unity of Christ's people. What is at stake in our unity is the name and reputation of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus did say in John 13, love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does it say when we are constantly bickering and fighting with one another? Disunity denies the name of Jesus. War within the church denies the gospel of peace. When we act as consumers, we threaten the unity of the church and we dishonor the God we claim to represent. It is devilish thinking that leads us to believe, well, if everybody just did things my way, it would be a lot better around here. When we turn preferences into principles, we get lost. When we turn issues of conscience into commands, we pull on the thread of unity. Saying, thus saith the Lord, where he has not saith. The consumer Christian unravels the unity in the church because he or she is not primarily concerned with Jesus' interest or others' interest but with their own interests. Remember James 4 earlier, we read it. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he says? Your devotion to your own passions. Unity, based on everything is just the way I like it, is fragile and fraudulent. Paul is putting a bullseye on our individualistic culture and our consumeristic tendencies, even as we approach church. We have that mindset that it exists for me. We don't want to hear about how we ought to contribute or about how we ought to behave as citizens worthy. No, we want to have everything 
our way. It might not be pertinent, but I, I just can't. I'm thinking of that Toby Keith song where he says, uh, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. That's how some of us think. We are all about me and what I get. Paul says, don't be consumers. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What he wants us to be is contributors, and that's what he brings us to in the second half of that verse. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Contributors ask, what honors God? How can I build others up? How can I comfort from love? How can I maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? How can I be full of affection and sympathy? How can I look to the interests of others? What will serve my brother or sister in Christ? A contributor, when they come, this is just an example, recognizes when we sing songs on Sunday morning, we're not always going to sing my favorite song. But you know what? I'm going to sing really loudly and boisterously to the Lord songs I don't like for the edification of my brother and sister who does like those songs. This is a funny thing in talking with people. You'll often hear, I love when we sing that song. And then the same week, I'll talk to somebody else, and they will tell me, I don't like that song, and we sing it all the time. Remember that when we are singing songs, and there's a vast catalog of hymns throughout Christian history, you're not going to like some of them, but you should still sing them because you want to edify your brother. And the singing in the service isn't about, oh, number one, oh, my, me, my. It's about building up the body of Christ. We don't want to be consumers. We want to be contributors. Paul wants us to think and live like Jesus, to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that means cultivating a a humility that produces, maintains the unity that Christ has purchased. He's not calling us to monolithic thinking. You don't have to think the same thing about everything in life. He is calling us to believe what it means to be a Christian, to believe those things we've agreed upon as a church, and to be humble like Christ in service to the Word of God. We say, well, I don't know how to do that. Paul says, that's great. I'm going to give you an illustration. You can live as a contributor You can live as somebody who looks not to your own interest, but to the interests of others by having the mind of Christ. You see, this is sort of hanging over the whole section. The the word mind is in verse 27, it's in verse 2 twice, and it's here in verse 5. Paul wants us to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel by adopting the mind of Christ as our own, as we walk in humility, which will cultivate the unity that he wants to exist in the Philippians, as they stand firm and strive against the enemy. Does anyone know what it looks like, how you get this mind? It's yours in Jesus. 
You know how you operate from that? How do you get humble? Look to the cross. That's what he's saying. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The point here is not that Christ emptied himself of deity. Some theologians will argue that Jesus wasn't really God because of this passage. He emptied himself of his godness. It's not what's happening here. It might be better in an English idiom. It would be like saying he made himself nothing, right? He's humbling himself. That's the point. After all, if he emptied himself of the attributes of deity, he would no longer be God, and that would be problematic for us Christians. Maybe an illustration, if you think of a porcupine, if you had a porcupine and the porcupine emptied itself of all the attributes of porcupines, then it would no longer be a porcupine, right? It could be a cucumber or a fish or a pineapple, but it wouldn't be a porcupine because it doesn't have any of those attributes. If God empties himself of his attributes, then he's no longer God, but the text doesn't say he emptied himself of something. It says he emptied himself. The the idea is that he made himself nothing. For Christ to humble himself and to become a man is not for him to subtract anything from his person. When God the Son took on flesh, he was not emptying himself out of deity. It wasn't a miracle of subtraction. It was a miracle of addition. He took on to himself a second human nature so that he can rightly be said to be fully God and fully man. The glory of the incarnation. Not the main point here though. Paul's main point is that Jesus humbled himself such that he entered into his creation. And he didn't just enter into his creation to live as king in perfect harmony. No, he he entered into his creation to die. Made himself a nobody. And then went to die the ignominious death of the cross. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He's going to humble himself further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ loved us and considered our interest ahead of his own to the extent that he became one of us so that he might die for us in our place, for our sins. This is the Christian gospel, that God became a man and took the wrath that we deserved. Jesus, our king, was crowned with thorns and hung on a Roman cross beneath shouts and jeers and mocking. He spilled his blood 
as payment for us so that he might buy us out of slavery to sin, so that he might buy us out of eternal condemnation and destruction. He humbled himself to die for his people. Non-Christian, you can know the great love of Christ. You can be redeemed. You can have your sins atoned for. You are at war with God. And he will ultimately destroy you in hell forever and ever. Unless you turn from your sin, humble yourself, and trust in Christ's work on the cross for your salvation. Christian, what an example we have here to humbly love one another as Jesus has loved us, to serve one another as Jesus has served us. And don't miss, we're motivated to humility in all sorts of ways and by this picture of the cross, but we're also motivated to this type of humility by verses 8 through 11. And what happens there? becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, this is what God does, and it's a pattern throughout Scripture. God has highly exalted him. Proverbs says, humility comes before honor. The one who humbles himself before the Lord will be lifted up by God's hand. God will reward your humble love and service to one another and your obedience to him. And so Paul says, humble yourselves, cultivate unity. Here are some really good reasons for doing that. Because you have all this encouragement in Christ. You've been wed to him. You have every spiritual blessing. You've been loved to the cross. Love and serve others. And he also says on the back end here, and Christ, after he humbled himself, was raised up by God to the glory of God. You likewise, as you imitate Jesus on the last day, you will be raised up by God to the glory of God. Humility and service to Christ will not only produce and maintain unity among the people of Christ, but it will bring glory when Christ returns. We have every reason to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, to have the mind of Christ, to humble ourselves and to serve one another in humility. You go, well, how do I get the mind of Christ? How do I get humility? Again, it's here. Look to the cross. I want to be really specific here at the, the end. I wanted to come back to this passage because I think it is a bloodstream scripture. We need to get verse 3 in particular into our veins. Because if we do not, if you do not, as I go from here, you will find reasons to bite and devour one another. Transitioning between pastors is a difficult thing. But it does not have to be a divisive thing. If you insist on me first and my wants and my needs... You are walking right into a snare of the devil. Better to consider one another's interests ahead of your own. 
better to think of ways to pray for and to follow your pastors, to follow Mike and David as they lead this process in searching for a preaching pastor. Think not, how can I consume? How can I get what I want? But how can I contribute? How can I contribute when the, the next pastor comes? Think about how you can serve them as you have served me so well over the years. How can I help prepare this brother for all that is before him, whether it's 40 years of ministry here at Rockfish or whether it's four years? How can I prepare him to glorify God with his skills and his gifts and abilities? And then do that thing. Think, how can I build up this church? Not, how can I build up myself? Be contributors, not consumers. Refuse to think, well, Justin's leaving and Rockfish, I don't know if it's really offering me the product uh, that I want anymore, and so I should find another vendor. It's time to church shop. That is devilish thinking, and it is from hell. And if you believe that the church is here primarily for you and you only, I have failed you. We exist to worship God together and to serve one another to his glory. We want to worship God and we want to witness to the reality that Christ has been crucified and he's now raised. And we get really, really confused if we think that all of this is about me having my needs met. We are here for Jesus. We are here for one another and we trust that God will feed us as his sheep along the way. Brothers and sisters, commit yourselves to humbly contributing to the work of God here. I am not the Christ, never have been. But you know what, as I go, I will become much less, and Christ will continue to become much greater. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of every church. And he will be faithful unto the end. So even as we transition, and there is so much opportunity for the devil to, to rip us apart, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Stand firm on the truth of Christ. Strive together against the enemy for unity. Humble yourself. Do not be conceited, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is an unbelievable privilege to call you our Father. To call one another brother and sister. It is a scandalous truth that all who repent of sin, trust in Christ, are given the name of Christ. We pray that you would help us to rightly represent Christ that we would live up to the name of Christ. By your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would 
plant and grow and cultivate humility within us so that unity is maintained among us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.